Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Adrian Redledge. Keen listeners to the podcast will recognize Adrian and his Merrick's group, who are very active in the private debt area, through past podcasts, and you might want to go back and listen to those. We have a great conversation with Adrian in this episode where we talk about the proportion of debt as the overall, or private debt that is, to the overall debt being provided in Australia and how it's a small part compared to overseas jurisdictions, indicating that there's lots of growth to go. We also talk about the valuation issues we have in the current environment, given the very cheap money that we've had available within the economy leading to real assets and property specifically, being at really historically high values and how that may play out. We talk about the advantage that private debt providers have over banks, for instance, in that they're lending equity and they're not using the level of leverage that say a CBA or other banks are using. We also talk about how the current development and building industry and private debt is going to be affected by the squeeze that we're seeing going on with rising costs and builders faced with having quoted and committed to fixed contracts that may now be very, very hard to deliver with any profit at all. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I certainly did. Remember to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast. And remember, it's not specific advice or designed to be specific or general advice and that people are encouraged to make their own inquiries and read all offer documents before making or considering any investments. Please remember to keep your feedback coming. You can get me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Adrian Rillich, welcome back to Inside the Rope. Glad to be here and first time in person. We've done a few over Zoom but it's uh, great to be in the uh, sound booth with you. Into the recording booth, yes. And, and I think I was just commenting to one of the guys in the office here that you, you might actually set the record now. So thank you for being such a great supporter. Really appreciate it. Oh, it's an honour. Adrian, private debt. Look, I'm sure people can go back and look at the past and listen, well, listen to the past recordings we've done in the podcast and, and work out that, you know, you're right at the top of private debt in Australia and a great track record um, and Merrick's has carved out a great space um, for themselves in that area. I think right where we're at the juncture, the thing that is the elephant in the room is we seem to be heading for a recession. Interest rates seem to have risen the sharpest they have since 94. Um, and you know the little level of indebtedness seems to be Three, three x what it was back then. Um, how are we going to handle it and how are private debt providers set up for it? It's the million dollar question, isn't it? You know, rising rates um, and what's the impact on borrowers? You know, so let, you know, let's recap the, I guess, the starting position. You know, for us, private debt, we only do senior secured lending. So you know, we replace the bank in the typical structure. Um, and our average loan to value across you know, several billion dollars of lending um, is around 60%. So when we look at things, obviously we've got lots of headroom in terms of there's a lot of equity ahead of us. Um, it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's a fairly secure asset, um, but ultimately you know, it's only as good as two things. You know, one, 
your borrower's ability to service the loan and repay you. Um, and if they can't do that, your ability obviously to sell the asset. Um, and so I think, I think for private debt, which is you know, the senior piece, let's put aside those sort of more niche strategies where people are subordinated or doing mares or things that are a bit funkier and close to equity. Let's talk about the predominance of debt is going to be senior. It's where you know it's the biggest dollars in the. It's like the bank. You know, there's a four trillion dollar banking balance sheet in the, the country. There's probably a two hundred billion dollar private debt balance sheet in the country. So it's probably five percent of the the bank balance sheet. Mm-hmm. But that's probably doubled over five years, and so growing um, and replacing the the banks. What is it overseas? Um, so if you look at the US, it's about half. So half of all debts provided by non-bank lending. So we're way so, behind. Yeah, we're way behind. UK, you're at 35% um, to 40%. And we're still um, way behind. Yeah, so we're, we're way behind. We've got, we've got a long way to go. Um, there's a whole series of issues that deal with it. Interest is not as tax effective as dividends um, or negative gearing on equity on real estate in Australia. So there's a whole range of structural reasons that actually makes equity a bit more tax efficient here than debt, um, but not so much in super funds. But So there's a whole range of reasons why debt maybe has to be a bit more expensive to compete like for like with equity versus the US or, or the UK. Um, but you know that's a, that's a rabbit hole we will steer yep, away from, from today. But coming back, I think, to uh, the premise, you know, what's the outlook for the, the world going forward? Um, I'll start and we'll probably end here in, in half an hour the same point we have a valuation issue in Australia and New Zealand where we live. Now, maybe it's true of the whole world. I've just you know, been to the US twice in the last six weeks. Um, I've been in, in Europe as well. Um, I'd say, you know, we've, we've had a valuation issue. You know, cheap money from central banks has pushed valuations up. You know, the, people have been paying more for future cash flows um, with rates going up. We've got a valuation issue. I don't think in most asset classes with, for real assets, so our focus, we only lend against real assets, I don't think we've got a supply issue. So what's very different to previous cycles, so maybe let's hark back to the early 90s, is that we had a demand shock at a time where we'd come out of the 80s and like, and we had a massive overbuild. Um, right now, partly because of peculiarities of COVID, Partly also because regulators were kind of hot on things like real estate development in 2017, 18, 19. We haven't had as much supply in general um, relative to demand. And so normally we get a demand shock right at the time where supply has peaked, right at the time the Fed, other central banks are lifting rates. And we suddenly not only do we have a valuation issue at those points, but we also suddenly have all these vacant assets. Now, put aside the things like office for the moment, because we can come back. Office is more about what does it structurally look mm-hmm. like. But um, things like residential apartments or hotels or the you know the like, there's a general need and there's, there's actually been an undersupply relative to the demand. And you know, we probably have 100,000 to 150,000 migrants that will come into Australia the next, this year. And there's some forecasts we're looking at now, maybe there's almost a quarter of a million people will come next year as migration, a big pushback. I think we'll see a lot of political impetus to get more people into the workforce here. Where are those people gonna live? Where are they gonna shop? You know, where are they gonna stay? So we, we've already got a tight market, 1% vacancy in residential, which gets most of the headlines. That's the focus for the average Australian or Kiwi mm-hmm. you know, looking at, at things. Um, so. We, we kind of look at the overarching, and I said, you know, where we start is 
within valuation can easily fall 10, 15%. No problem, right? Like it's off the peak of fourth quarter last year, of you know, fourth quarter 2021, you could easily come back 10%. No, and for most people, they wouldn't notice the difference with that because... Residential house prices. Yeah, residential. Talking. But I think sure. that's true of... I think that's true of you know a Bunnings industrial asset you know that people like and have paid the the highest prices for or the tightest yield. Um, I think it's true of most assets. We could easily come back 10, 20 percent in valuation. So when you're lending at a 60 percent LVR, you're not so worried about is the value holding up. But clearly, when it gets to the end of the loan term, it's pretty challenging for the borrower. We sort of turn around and say, Hey, look, you owe us 50 million. Yeah, we've got a hundred million dollar office building. Give us our money back, and they go. You know, they go and turn up at, you know, CBA, and because they've gone through their redevelopment or you know they've put tenants in there, um, again, park for a moment that maybe the tenant. You know, it's been difficult to get tenants, but just let's assume, and CBA turn around and say, oh, we've had the valuation done. It's now eighty five million, and we're only willing to lend forty. So I think that you know the potential risk and challenge is actually just difficult conversations with borrowers potentially having to hang on to loans for longer, charge higher rates, and that's sort of the, the cycle that we go through. Now, that, that is a negative feedback loop. You know, you start to put people under pressure, they have to sell assets, or uh, and private debt may not be willing to hold assets as long as banks. Banks, you know, since the early 90s, have put things into bad bank, and they've just sat there. They haven't forced people to sell they didn't want to write down their book. So if you look at the financial crisis, the banking system really embarked on a different strategy in the early 90s. Early 90s, there was a fire sale. Everywhere, everything went on the market. They cleared house. In the financial crisis, banks basically sat there for a lot longer, a lot longer period of time because they don't want to rewrite their whole book. Um, and so they said, private debt may have a di slightly different lens on it. So coming back to you know, our portfolio and, and using that as an example, you know, we're seeing generally refinance taking longer. So when loans get to the end of maturity, they take a bit longer. Um, people have to pay a bit more. And so we've definitely seen the cost of debt go up. Mm -hmm. And so you know, equity is, is suffering. You know? and, and so I think that's the, that's the challenge, right? So what does it mean? It means fewer new assets certainly get developed. You know, if there's less growth because the cost of things, you know, it's prohibitive. And the rising, you know, rising cost of things includes the rising cost of money. Um, and so it's not just purely base rate, it's actually the spread on as well. So there's sort of a double whammy that we're seeing. Will we see some collapses and some defaults in the private debt space, do you think? In terms of the providers, you think? You ask a question yeah, in terms all the of the products private, and defaults um, on single line. You know, so, so some providers out there are doing, you know, single line across one property and those type of things. Will we yeah, see I, them, you know, default where they have to step in and take over the property and, uh, and sell no, it? No doubt. I mean, you, you've seen in the last 24 hours, we've seen Caden, another borrower, mm -hmm. um, not of ours, but I'm saying a, a developer borrower in this Melbourne-centric, um, has gone into receivership yesterday, McGrath-Nichols managing those assets. Um, they, yeah, without getting into the depths of their balance sheet, we've never lent to them, but we've been approached by them before to provide um, some funding. They had debt at the asset level and debt at the parent level. And so I think it's as simple as say leverage on leverage, mm -hmm. and then the music stopped. And that's true of most of the defaults that we've seen. It's not you know, what I would argue sort of sensible leverage. 
it's when the capital stack, and that's I think what you're alluding to before, you know, there's there's different forms of leverage. You know, the senior debt, then a mes debt, then preference equity, highly at risk those structures. Um, but you know, we, we don't venture away from the senior debt. You know, we obviously want to control the be in control. We want to be the bank. You know, if there's a problem, if we had to step in and deal with it. Now, over the hundreds of loans that we've done over the last decade, we've had to enforce twice. So meaning bring in a receiver, run a process, and sell mm-hmm. those assets. Um, and so you know, we've been through that process before. We'll do it if we you know, if we have to in the future. And I think that's where probably differ a little bit from banks. The banking system, again, you know, they've been under so much pressure in royal commissions. You take farming, for instance, you know, the, the royal commission into bank practices as regards to farmers, there was so much bad PR around that, that, you know, banks have retreated. It's one of the reasons there's been opportunity for groups like us. It's not even that the collateral's bad, it's just the whole ecosystem of lending in agriculture at times is hard. Um, for us, I guess we take a different approach. You know, we're happy if you know to go through the process and manage that if we have to um, as an organization meaning that's our job whereas we do you know we don't begrudge you know having to do that um, it's obviously a terrible experience um, for borrowers and it's not good for brand like it doesn't help us write more loans but that's how you know that's the job like you know you have to go through that process and and enforce and so i think that's where you know private debt might be you know, to protect its asset base, maybe more willing to just go through the process um, of enforcing and to selling up assets. The flip side of that is when we lend our money and, you know, Coda's clients' money into these, these loans, we're lending equity. If you look at CBA, you know, CBA has $70 billion of equity and over a trillion dollars worth of assets and loans. So for $1 of equity that CBA has on its balance sheet, it's levered, what, 13 times or 14 times. So CBA has a whole lot of their own borrowers they have to repay. So they, may ha- they have to service that. So they need that. Whereas when you're lending equity, you can, if it's sensible, say to a borrower, we're going to charge you a bit more interest. But if it makes sense, we'll sit there for a lot longer because there's so much asset value. So it, it's double-edged sword. You know, I think private debt doesn't worry about the reputational issues to the same extent that banks banks do but at the same time it actually has private debt most of the the funds in australia and the big credit funds are sure they actually have much better balance sheets than the banks i mean that's the irony people would sort of look at that's ridiculous but we have no debt i mean we have two billion dollars plus of balance sheet and not a not a dollar of leverage ourselves so we can sit there for a long period of time and work through something with someone if it makes sense Conversely, if we think asset values are falling and to preserve the capital, yeah, we would we would step in and, and deal with that. And Adrian, I want to step back to the agriculture fund, which you touched on. I'll do that in a moment. But you, you, you flagged the collapse of Caden. There's been a few builders collapse this year and there'll probably be a few more. Um, what are you typically looking for when you're writing these loans and assessing developers and capability or is it all just balance sheet strength? No, no, there's a num- There's clearly a number of factors. So Caden's a developer, not a builder, so we mm-hmm. need to you know, distinguish the two. Um, most, you know, most buildings are built by contractors or independent builders in Australia, um, which is segregated from the developer. Occasionally they're integrated, so you know, usually the developer goes through the process, does the planning, you know, if it's residential, makes the sales, 
um, gets all the planning approvals, runs the process, puts in the equity, arranges the finance and is the owner. And then they contract on a design and um, construct contract with the builder and the builder is on the hook for delivering the building at a fixed price usually. I mean, there's a few variations um, being discussed at the moment, but that's the basis um, in Australia of how things work. So we have two layers of risk management. You, know, you have the borrower with their equity and a guarantee from them usually mm -hmm. that if you know, money's needed over and above what we propose in the loan. And then you also have a tripartite arrangement with the builder that if the developer was to go bust, you're funding the builder and you'll finish the building and you will step in and you will deliver on those pre-sales, for instance, in apartments or pre-lease in an office and you'll finish the building um, and deal with the builder. So there's sort of a tripartite arrangement. There's sort of two lines of defence. So clearly when you're looking at the developer, you're looking at the soundness of the development, you're looking at their balance sheet, you know, in terms of their ability to maybe fund extra costs or cost overruns or time delays or issues with other assets they have. Um, you're clearly looking at their expertise and their experience. In, in regards to builders, where there's been probably more pressure, mm -hmm. your building is a very tight margin business. Most big builders operate on a net margin between two and four percent. And 30 to 40 percent price increases when you've gone in with a fixed price quote, pretty unhelpful. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there was a quote yesterday, I attended a, a presentation from um, one of the big builders, Robertson Co., it's the new emerging builder, um, the CEO yesterday presented, and, and I think she put it aptly, said single single digit margin business, double digit price rises, math doesn't work, right? So, but having said that, on most jobs, good builders have pre-tendered 98% of the work out to subcontractors. So they've already got fixed price on the plumbing, on the joinery, on the, you know, the balustrades, on the facade, on the structure. So they've subbed it all out. So they're, they're effectively managing contracts so where it really comes down to is if the subcontractors can deliver and what cost pressure they've had. So we've seen quite a few subcontractors go bust um, and then it's fallen on the builder to have to cover that and deal with it. And you know, it's pretty much eaten up their margin. So there's plenty of jobs you can point to right now where builders are losing money. But it's a little bit, you know, that, that element is for the market is a little bit rear view looking in the sense that it's really been the story of the last 12 months, six months. It was pretty um, obvious, to be honest, a year ago mm -hmm. um, when we're looking at builders and the pressures and, and where they were coming. And, th and that was when times were good because builders were under so much pressure, they were operating on no margin, subcontracts operating on no margin to win, to win the business. But that's because things were so hot in places like Perth and Queensland and Auckland where there was no availability, no capacity competing with infrastructure projects. And so they're already tight and you could see it coming. And so those that were aggressive and bid, um, yeah, they've been found out. So the way we manage that, we have a whole team that goes through what we call our quality control processes before we enter into loan. You know, we're looking at um, all of you know, how much of their trades they've let on a job, um, you know, builders let on a job, um, how much is covered, the, you know, the balance sheet of the builder. We're looking at the cash flow cycle of the builder. So you know, it's, balance sheet is one thing, but you're trying to look at you know, what's their revenue versus what's their receivables versus their payables. You know, builders generally get paid before they pay their subcontractors. So they run positive working capital, but you know, you're obviously looking to keep make sure that cycle, they're not stringing out their subcontractors mm -hmm. um, too far. But the quality control systems is for us the, the, one of the most important points. 
and we have a, you know, our DeBuilt team, which is just our due diligence team in commercial real estate, if you manage quality control, even if a subcontractor goes bust, you can bring another one in. It will cost a little bit more, but you get the certifications and the sign off, and then you've got insurer, you know, a, a complete project. So we've, we've, over our life, had two builders go bust, not in recent times, but we've managed it before. There's systems and processes to deal with it. But you know, you get paid for that risk, and again, if there's 40% equity you know, sitting subordinated to you, there's the wherewithal to deal with this and to finish a project and, and deliver. But what it all means, it's getting harder to deliver new projects. Costs are going up, the replacement costs of assets are up. So as I said at the beginning, the contrast between supply, um, you know, the question of oversupply and replacement cost um, is quite stark. You know, we don't necessarily have an oversupply issue. The cost of replacing everything has gone up, yet I'm saying the valuations could fall. And that's an unsustainable environment where lower valuations or cap rates for buildings, but they cost more to build. That's unsustainable. And, and that is a, that's a healthy environment to clean out a cycle really quickly. And you talked a little bit about the ag fund and lending to agriculture a moment ago. H how is inflation coming through there? Is, some, is there some protection? Because generally the pricing elasticity of most foods, I don't know, I've seen lettuce being uh, talked about a lot at the moment, but um, how are the pressures and the dynamics playing out in lending in that space versus the development and, and property space more in the commercial real estate space Yeah, so as a yeah, comparison? Yeah, ag agriculture's um, in a, a little bit of a sweet spot at the moment. There's some subsectors that have been dramatically impacted by flooding and, and rainfall, and you talk about some, some of the veggie growers talk about lettuce specifically it's sort of fallen into that camp mm -hmm. so they've you know it's been a bit tough in pockets um, you've had a few other areas that have been difficult in pockets such as the red wine producers you know, or because of China market we've gone from exporting a billion dollars of wine a year to China to zero I think the, the actual number was 20 million dollars last year so it's it's just been turned off so there's pockets of pain but on aggregate, you're looking at a wheat price you know, that traditionally over the last 15 years, wheat's been $200 a tonne. Australian wheat today is $400 a tonne and it's the cheapest wheat in the world. So we're winning lots of market share, trying to fill the gap for Ukraine. You know, we'll have record exports. Um, you've got record beef prices that, if, when I say record, I'm talking about a, a, for the average over last year. All these prices have come off the heady peaks maybe of a month or two ago where sort of the Ukraine conflict was at its sort of zenith. Um, and, but you've got really high prices. We've had really good weather conditions. You know, Australia, New Zealand to some degree, but really Australia is, it's sort of been a nirvana where, where, the, where traditionally the country that really suffers from drought and the sort of boom bust, where it's actually looks at California, you looks at parts of Europe, um, the plains, you know, the central plains of China, some of the food bowls of the world, they've been really struggling you know, to meet their production quotas and get there because of been tough weather conditions. So the La Nina environment has been really good for agriculture in Australia. So we've got full dams, really good water quotas, really high commodity prices. Um, land values are a bit eye-watering in terms of the prices people are paying. Mm -hmm. So you know, farmers are a bit notorious for looking over the fence their neighbour you know, is wanting to sell and having to buy it at any price. And that's a risk you, you, know, you have to clearly manage. Um, you also have over 50 funds, so real estate funds or private equity funds, 
that are buying farmland across Australia and New Zealand, but more Australia because New Zealand's sort of banned foreign ownership of farmland. So it's very aggressive, the buying of farmland by funds, so the private equity piece. So prices, again, you know, sort of look and go, do we have a valuation issue? Maybe, but what we do have is we have farmers that are generating incredible amounts of cash flow. So serviceability, um, and what we're seeing, the cycle over the last, <coughs> excuse me, the last um, two, three years where we, you know, we had some droughts in pockets around Australia, commodity prices a bit lower, things like dairy producers, banks were really struggling, the cash flow wasn't so good. Now you're looking at huge cash flow. Um, I think bankability for farming has improved dramatically. And, and banks tend to be a little bit backward looking. They look mm -hmm. at the, you know, their earnings for the last two years rather than trying to predict what they're going to be for the next two. Um, as much as they'll say they're doing the work and they have their own forecast, most of us that have been involved in the commodity industry over the last 25 years, and so I guess this is most markets, your best prediction of tomorrow's price is today's price. You know, sort of the way it, you know, it always start with today and then how's yep. it shifting. We're starting at high prices, so everyone's forecasting pretty robust prices for quite a period of time. So what we're seeing in agriculture is the ability for banks to refinance, um, take on farmers, the funds willing to buy farmland is very good. Um, so you know, and some of the things like I mentioned earlier, office where there's the refi market might be a bit tighter. Um, agriculture is still pretty robust in that sort of cycle. Um, the one challenge that agriculture faces, the input costs have gone up materially. You know, they're all big diesel yep, users, fertiliser, and labour, a big challenge. You know, Shortage. Yep. Everyone who lives, you know, most of our investors will live in cities predominantly. We do have a few you know, based rurally, but most who live in cities will, will be well aware of the challenges of, you know, of labour just working in you know, the local shops and they're probably their own businesses, much more acute in farming areas. It's always difficult to get people into rural areas, um, but particularly without the backpackers at you know, picking yep. season for you know, the orchards and the like. And Migrant workers and travellers. I came back from a trip up to Julia Creek a couple of weeks back and just about every stop we made, uh, there was a sign up, kitchen closed, staff shortages at pretty much every town we went through. Yeah. So it's it's acute. So so labour labour shortages is a problem. Um, uh, it will be interesting to see the policies put in place of of how aggressively they push migrants out into the rural communities. Part of the deal uh, coming here, um, but farmers can pay. Yeah, there's the ability they will pay. Like you know, but so there, there's cost pressure, and so maybe in some of the modelling that we get from some of our borrowers, and when we stress test them, they're too optimistic on their cost base. Um, fortunately, their revenue line is is doing extremely well, so it's a really attractive area. One of the challenges for us is where we just have we're just being asked to find finance too many things in agriculture, and to keep particularly in our partners fund to keep it balanced, uh, you know, sort of maximum a third. Um, we're having to turn down a lot of loans. So in general, we're having we've overrun. We've got much more demand for financing today than we've had in our entire life cycle relative to our capital base. Um, it's just a function. The capital markets obviously are struggling. Credit spreads are out across the board. Um, there's a scarcity of money um, in the system and there's demand for lots of loans. So the loans are attractive that we're writing today because we're writing them with, you know, sort of valuations down slightly, more extreme covenants in place. No one pushes back on anything you request. Um, and the interest rates are higher. 
Um, but you can you, know, you can only get so much blood from the stone. You know, we're talking about real estate here. Mm-hmm. If you overcharge, well, they might sign up to it, but you'll never receive that interest. So it's got to be balanced. But I think it's, you know, for our team, there's a lot more competition for capital internally. There's a lot more sort of fighting for, you know, what's the best loan, what should we be financing? And so it's a pretty healthy place to be. It's a good environment. Um, in winding up, how would you encourage existing investors or investors who are thinking of either going to the Partners Fund or, or the Agriculture Fund to be thinking about returns over the next 12 to 18 months? Yeah, so 60% of our loans are floating um, and that, will, that percentage will increase. Um, so we'll see an increase in returns over the next year just from the base rate increase. So I think loans will be 1%, 2% higher um, just on our existing book. We're seeing returns slightly higher on new loans we're writing, but we're making a concerted effort to actually lower our risk attachment point and probably stick with a sort of 8 9% return rather mm-hmm. than sort of return chasing um, to sort of push to 10 11%, um, which we could on similar loans to what we've written, but I think the world's got tougher. So I think earning 5 or 6% above the 10-year bond rate for a senior secured loan it's a great place to continue to hide. And, and I'd describe, you know, that's what we've been doing at Merrick's. You know, we, we have a, a history of being really active in equity funds, owning power plants, owning farms, doing things in different funds. We, you know, we've, I guess, you know, been questioned before when we've described the central bank activity as a central bank Ponzi scheme that's been politically induced. Couldn't understand it, still don't understand it, and, you know, it will unwind. We're pretty happy to hide in the security of senior secured loans, um, and you know, right now, I think you know returns look solid. We continue to overlay the partners' funds with the credit default swaps. Mm-hmm. So you know, we have that insurance portfolio that, should we have a, a macro meltdown here in Australia, that will give us an extra 10 to 15 percent sort of insurance payoff, if you like, that will help protect us. So we're, you know, we're feeling, we're feeling um, nervous about the world's but fairly, fairly secure in you know, the assets we hold in the funds. Um, and yeah, the world's, the world's clearly changed where we are you know, bid for, you know, for financing, um, not much competition. And the days of probably the credit, sort of the, the loan syndicators, you know, there's sort of a lot of shops running around, mm-hmm. particularly sort of bidding wealth clients for individual loans they've disappeared. Like it's really hard to get single, you know, I think to raise money on single deals and single loans. And so that, that market sort of disappeared. And so the market short cash, you know, banks, banks in certain segments are shut. And before we wrap up, what, what's your view or best estimate on where you see the cash rate go in Australia? Yeah, I think the cash rate has to go up to 3%, mm-hmm. yeah, at a bare, bare minimum. Um, and I think that's just normalisation. Yeah, that, we're just going back to a pre-COVID level. Let's start there. Let's let's even start with the assumption that all of this inflation and everything going out is a COVID washout, and we can normalise base rate at you know at three percent, allowing for potentially a recession, is normal. You know, zero is for, is not. It's artificial. It's artificially induced across the board. Um, so, we, you know, we think base rate 3%. What I would say on some of the food processing borrowers that we finance, some that um, 
that sort of talking about where pricing is going. All of them are talking about higher pricing for their product in the second half. The reason I talk about food processing between that and rent, it's such a big part of the inflation basket. I think we've got some persistence to come for, for six months. So I think we definitely see that you know, the RBA you know, sort of stick with market expectations and we see base rates move up to at least 3%, you know, potentially four. Um, our core view is that long-term 10-year bond rate is three to four. Um, and again, that assumes that globalization isn't completely dead and you know, things flow fluidly in terms of manufacturing in China. We still get product to this part of the world um, and still moves, you know, moves fairly fluidly. Um, but we think you know, if we, we're assuming three to four percent 10 year bond rate when we look at valuations that they have to stack up. And what that means is for lots of assets, if you've got a four percent 10 year bond rate, the yield on a property can't be four percent. Yep. Maybe Resi it can. Could We've had negative gearing for a long period of time in this country. There's some crazy things happening, mm-hmm. but you're not buying an industrial property at four, you're not buying an office building at four percent. And so va- I come back to where we started. Valuations fall, but I don't think we've got massive oversupply that leads to a catastrophic fire sale of assets in this country. Terrific. Great place to end. Thank you very much once again, and uh, I'll look forward to the next time. Thanks, Adrian. Great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.